Hello, friends. It's time for the second hour of Open Line with Dr. Michael Radonik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. We're talking about your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. I'm Michael Radonik, professor of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute, and we're broadcasting from Moody's downtown Chicago campus. If you have a Bible question today, don't phone in. It's a special all-mailbag, all-the-time program. But you can write your question to openline at moody.edu, or you can post it on Twitter. Our handle is at openlineradio1, or you can like us on Facebook, and while you're there, you can post your question on the Openline Radio Facebook page. It's probably the easiest. Just go to our website, openlineradio.org, and that website has links to everything you're looking for, even links to email, Facebook, and Twitter. Joining me today in studio is Eva Rydelnik. She is my colleague on the faculty of Moody Bible Institute. She is co-contributor to the Moody Bible Commentary, and she's been my wife for low these many years. And uh, we, uh, I should say, I've been her husband all these years. Let's get it right, you know. Uh, and uh, also, managing questions is mailbag expert, producer of Open Line, Trisha McMillan. Welcome. Glad we're all together. Me too. Yeah. So being here around the radio kitchen table in person is like even more fun than listening at home. That's right. So that's maybe right. like a lot of people just come down and be with us. Yeah. It's, oh, well, they are. Great. <laughs> they are. They're listening in. That's right. So, well, let's keep our Bibles open and let's get a second cup of coffee because we're going to go right back to your questions. And Trisha has got a lot of them we've got to yeah. cover. And yeah. we're going to dive in this one, um, yeah. in this next question. Um, several people have written in with this, so I'm going to kind of tie their questions together. Wendy in Chattanooga, Tennessee, listens to WMBW. Sean and Jennifer um, have all written in with a question about Hebrews 6, 4 oh, through 6. It's a, it's a troubling passage. It is. It is. Does, does this passage, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, imply that you can lose your salvation? Um, if not this passage, do you think you can ever, under any circumstance, lose your salvation? Um Sean says he doesn't think you can lose your salvation. So the verses, if that's, if he's right, are the verses teaching, are they teaching for the Christian Jews to not fall back into Judaism? Um, And then Jennifer wanted to know if God, um, along with all of the rest, would God take away a free gift like that from a person? I mean, we talk about it being this free gift that we just have to take it. If you have, can he take that back? Now, I just want you to know, I'm going to take a lot of time with this question because we get a lot of people with it. And I think the way to start with this is with what Scripture teaches about our security. Yeah. And this is such a great passage. Everybody should have this underlined in their Bible to be knowing that their relationship with the Lord Jesus is secure, not because of what they do, but because of what he has done. He's, this, is, uh, this is in John chapter, chapter 6, and it starts like, let's just start at verse 37. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I will lose nothing, but raise him up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Seems pretty clear that the person doing the work in this situation is the Lord Jesus. Yeah, and he always does the will of the Father. Always does the will. So if anybody could be lost, that would mean that Jesus had failed in his mission, 
And if he had failed in his mission, then he could not be the Messiah. So, yeah, he, he stakes his whole messianic identity right. on the fact that he always does the will of the Father. This is my Father's will, that of all that he has given me, I like how my version reads in, uh, in the HCSB, I lose none of them. Right. And uh, I think that is crucial. So I think that we can't get stronger than the words of Jesus that he says we are secure. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say Hebrews 6 is troubling, because on the surface, it appears that it's saying the opposite. And I'm going to read the verses that people are asking about. It says, For it's impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, became companions with the Holy Spirit, tasted the good words and powers of the world or the coming age, and who have fallen away because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. So it's impossible to renew them to repentance. And it sounds like it's saying that they've come and they've known the Lord and they've lost their salvation. Now, here's how I, I'm just going to explain the passage. I think it'll answer all those questions that we got. First of all, I think it's really crucial that we understand he's writing to Jewish believers. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. Uh, To Messianic Jews, we would call them today. And they're facing persecution, and they're thinking about going backwards. Some of them are thinking about going backwards to more traditional Judaism, leaving Jesus out of the equation. And then when the persecution passes by, they'll move back to it. But they're thinking about going backwards. And so I think, in a sense, the, the book of Hebrews is written to a mixed multitude of some who are genuine believers and some who are because they're considering this, are betraying the fact that they may not be believers. And you see this in Hebrews 3, verse 6. It says, Messiah was faithful as a son over his household, and we are presently, that's why I'm adding the word present tense there, we are that household if we hold on to the courage and confidence of our hope. And it's also saying, what if we bail? What if we don't hold on to the courage and confidence of our hope? Then we are not his household today. Uh, and so it proves that we are, if we bail, it proves that we don't know the Lord. Uh, Hebrews 3.14 says, We have become companions of the Messiah if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. And so what it's saying there is we hold firm and then we demonstrate that we're companions of the Messiah. But what if we don't hold firmly? Well, then we're not his companions. And so it is saying, look, you're, if you don't endure, you're demonstrating that you're not elect. The great outward sign of being part of the elect family of God is enduring in the faith. Those who bail demonstrate that they're not. Now, what's the warning in Hebrews 6 about? I know I'm, I'm kind of taking over here on I'm this. I'm just thinking that people are afraid they're not going to endure. That's yeah. where they get afraid. Yeah. What if I don't keep up? Yeah. Well, uh, Hebrews 6, 9 talks about that and says, even though we're speaking this way, dear friends, in your case, we're confident of better things. And so there's a great deal of confidence that he has that if we know Jesus, we will endure. And uh, if you know Jesus, you don't have to worry about not enduring. Now, in Hebrews 6, it's really important to read it in context, and he tells them to leave the elementary message about the Messiah and let us go on to maturity. And some people think in Hebrews 6, 1, when it says that, it's saying, leave the foundational truths you were taught as a new believer and go on and become a mature follower of Messiah. 
follower, a mature follower of Jesus. But I don't think it's saying, he says, leave the elementary message of the Messiah. I think what he's saying there is leave the elementary message that you learned as a Jewish person who didn't believe in Jesus yet and move on to the maturity of full faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And here's why I, uh, I say this, is he says uh, that we have to move on from the foundation of repentance, that's taught in traditional Judaism and in uh, the Messianic faith, the faith in Jesus, the Christian faith, uh, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. That All those things are found in, uh, in both Judaism and in the foundational teachings of the Christian faith. But there's one of those things that is mentioned that is not uh, referring to that, and that is the word uh, baptismos, ritual washings in my version. Some versions say baptisms. That is a word that is used exclusively in the New Testament to refer to Old Testament ritual washings. It never refers to Christian baptism. And so what he is saying, that's how I know that all these things refer to Old Testament ideas. He says we need to move on from those Old Testament ideas to their fulfillment in Jesus, and then we'll have a mature faith. And so what is he saying? He's saying to people who are thinking about bailing, I know you don't know the Lord. But you need to move on to a fully or full, complete faith in Jesus. And then he gives a warning. And the warning is, once we come as close as you have come, if you bail, it's impossible to renew you to repentance. You have come closer and closer and closer, so much that people even think you're a believer, but you're not. He says, you've been enlightened. You know that Jesus is the Messiah. You've tasted the heavenly gift. Uh and you became companions with the Holy Spirit. You got to partake in the events of the Holy Spirit right here in this congregation that you're part of. You've tasted the good word of God. You've heard it preached. You've seen the powers of the coming age. You've seen all these things. You know this is true, and yet you haven't made a personal decision. And if you bail now, if you don't put your trust in Jesus now, but you bail, it will be impossible, and I would think this is humanly speaking, it will be impossible to renew you to repentance. And that's humanly speaking. Now, of course, I think God can renew anyone to repentance at any time. But generally speaking, he's, he's saying is if you get this close and then you abandon, then your hearts are hardened and you won't come back. And so I think it's a, I call it the close but no cigar warning uh, that you've come this close. You've been raised with this Old Testament teaching, but you but now you're thinking of going back to non-Messianic Judaism. And if you do that, it's going to be really bad for you. Now, this is a passage that uh, even I have talked about many yeah, times. It's like, I understand it. That's good. That's good. And then six months later, can we go over that Hebrew six thing again? Because <laughs> I don't understand it as much as I did. When we were but that, that was Eva a long time ago. Now yeah. she... she... I've got it now. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can understand how it keeps coming up in people's yeah, thoughts. But it, it's so encouraging to know. I love what he says in verse 9. We mentioned it already, uh, where he says, even though we are speaking this way, dear friends, in your case, we're confident of better things connected with salvation. We are confident that you know the Lord and that you really are his child. And you're not going to bail because what's the evidence of, of uh, election? It's endurance staying faithful. And he says, you know, you're going to stay faithful and then you'll demonstrate that you really did know the Lord. That's his great confidence for them. So people shouldn't look at this 
as worrisome. But I'll tell you who, what we should do. We should examine ourselves, not worry about the future, examine ourselves. Are we in the faith now? Have we really trusted in Jesus? Are we not trusting in our own good deeds? Do we believe he died for our sins and rose again? If that's the case, stick with it. That's our faithfulness. But if you think, yeah, I've been kind of around this stuff. I was raised in the church. I've seen this stuff, but I haven't really put my trust in Jesus. Well, that's that's the thing to do. We need to put our trust in Jesus. Well, uh, we are going to be right back with more of uh, your questions in just a moment. You're listening to Michael Rydelnik, Trish McMillan, and Eva Rydelnik as we talk about your questions from the Word of God. Each week on Open Line with me, Dr. Michael Rydelnik, we sit around our radio kitchen table and study the scriptures together. You can become a kitchen table partner by supporting Open Line each month. As a benefit to becoming a partner, you'll receive a bi-weekly email called a Bible study moment where I'll share Bible study tips, answer some common Bible questions, and encourage you in your spiritual walk. Become a kitchen table partner today. Call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. Welcome back to Open Line. My name is Michael Rydelnik, and I am so glad uh, that you're listening in today. Joining me is Eva Rydelnik. She's a professor at Moody Bible Institute, and she also a contrib- is a contributor to the Moody Bible Commentary. And amazingly, she shares my last name. And uh, I guess it's because we're married. And then also with me is Trisha McMillan, the producer of Open Line. She's the one who uh, generally... Uh, puts the program together every weekend. She's the one that sets up your calls and makes sure that everything is going smoothly. And she is here. She's put the mail back together. And so she's the one asking the questions today. And uh, Eva's the one who usually answers them via text. But today, she's right here to do that. Well, Trish... Uh, we got more here, right? We do. We're yeah. going to keep, we're going to kind of stay with that salvation, can you lose your salvation mm-hmm. topic. Uh, Wendy had a question. She's in Indianapolis, Indiana, listens to WGNR. She and her husband were discussing the elect, and she was wondering first if it's possible for one of the chosen to not respond to the call, and second, if one of the chosen or elect does not respond and call in the name of Jesus, call in the name of the Lord Jesus, will that person still be admitted to heaven? Because they're uh. elect. Okay, I think we can look back again at that passage out of John chapter 6 that we looked at in the answer to the a previous caller's question. Writer's question, right? A writer's question, <laughs> yeah. right. Um, but uh, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. They will come. So if a person is elect, they are going to come to Jesus. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So if a person comes, it's not it, – they – they're not going to be cast out. So there's a couple of principles that we see here. First of all, that if you are elect and answer to Wendy's question, you will respond to the call of Jesus, and that that will be a a permanent response because it says, "For I have not come down to from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me." And it's God's will that that of all that He has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise Him up on the last day. Yeah. So what was the second part of that question that she had? Um, if someone is elect or chosen and doesn't respond, will that person still be admitted to okay. heaven? Th- that's just not a possibility. 
because no. if you are elect and chosen, you will respond. You will yes. respond, right? And the thing mm-hmm. is, when people respond, do you think they are responding because they know that they're elect? No. no, no, they don't know they're elect. It's I love that quote. Uh, I think it was Spurgeon, but uh, it was Warren Wearsby that I heard quoted at the door of the door where he said, "As you enter." The, uh, getting saved, coming to know the Lord, is sort of like seeing a door with a sign above it that says, whosoever will may come. And then you walk, walk through, through the door, door, and the other side says... Chosen before the foundation of the world. Yeah, and I just think that that's so true. And uh, that same day, I remember, uh, it was my first week at Moody Bible Institute as a student. So we're talking years ago. Uh, I remember uh, President Lincoln had just been inaugurated. And... <laughs> uh, it was a long time ago, and Warren Wiersbe was the pastor there, and he talked about Ephesians 1. That was the, He was teaching the college-age Sunday school class. And he talked about uh, uh, about election that day, and he said, uh, ex- uh, try to explain election, you'll lose your mind. Try to explain it away, you'll lose your soul. <laughs> and I just I, I so appreciated what he had to say about it, that there is something mysterious there. Right. We want to make put God in a box and understand every single little bit, but mm-hmm. really God's ways are higher than our ways. Yeah. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. We, we can can't. live with that tension. Yeah, we can live with it. That's right. Uh, it's, And I, I'll get it right this time. It's one of the things that I have discovered. It's about sovereignty, free will, about election and responding with faith. It's like uh, I read this book about science. Uh, it was called, uh, no, it doesn't matter. Uh, the point of it is, it says that even in science, there are things that are taken by faith that we just can't comprehend, that light is said to be made of waves, and it's also made of particles. And it can't be both, and yet it is. And people say, well, how can God have sovereign election and we have to respond with faith? Uh, well, because then it's not, not faith anymore. If God, Well, they're both true. We have to respond, and yet God chooses. And they're both true. And and it's just how how you live. So, all right. Thank you. I hope for all of you who've had that question. I hope this clears it up for you a little bit. <laughs> just live with it, um, right? Yeah. Well, live with it. Yeah, right? well, um, but there's so much there to unpack. Yeah. Um, Crystal has a question out of Luke 12, verses 41 to 48. Um, I feel those pages turning. I, I love that. Um, this is a parable. The Lord Jesus is telling. She wants to know if this is punishment for unbelievers or for believers. She said it's the um, the un. Oh, I'm trying to find it here. Uh, I found it. The... Who then is the faithful and sensible manager his master will put in charge of his household servants to give them their allotted food at the proper time? That slave whose master finds him working when he comes will be rewarded. I tell you the truth. He will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, and he starts to beat the male and female slaves and to eat and drink and get drunk, this slave's master will come on a day he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with unbelievers. And the slave who knew his master's will and didn't prepare himself to do it will be severely beaten. But the one who did not know and did things deserving of blows will be beaten lightly." Much of will be required of everyone who has been given much, and even more will be expected of those who have been entrusted to more. Okay. More. So Crystal says, to her, it sounds like the believer has stopped looking for his master and in the end is punished as an unbeliever. But I thought a person couldn't lose their salvation. So wh- where does this parable fit into 
what we were just talking about, or or does it? Uh, I think ooh. it's important to always understand the, the the point of the parable. I don't think this is Jesus is really talking about rewards and punishment as far as being having a right relationship with God. As far as thinking about being a believer or not a believer, I think the the issue of this parable is more about being faithful with what you have been given. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- yeah, I think that's true. And and here's what what I think about this is that first of all, we have to be governed by what the plain teaching of Scripture says. Uh, when I first came to Moody Bible Institute, I remember uh, I had a spiritual life course, and Mr. Winslet was the professor. And I asked him, he was started off with, your spiritual life starts with your security, knowing that we are secure in him. And I raised Hebrews 6. And I got to tell you, he gave probably a better explanation than I tried last segment. But <laughs> nevertheless, I couldn't hear it. I couldn't understand it. And I kept pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. And finally, I was just an annoying student. Annoying student. Anyway, so finally he said to me, uh, and he always called me, my brother, he said, I'm going to tell you what you need to know. He says, always interpret the unclear in light of the clear. And then he just listed off all these verses from John 6 that we mentioned and John 10, that nothing will ever pluck us out of the Father and the Son's hands mm-hmm. and uh, that <clears throat> nothing will separate us from the love of God. Romans like 8. Romans 8, yeah. yeah. And he, I mean, he started boom, 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 passage after passage after passage. He says, there's nothing clearer in Scripture that we are secure. So you're going to find an obscure passage, a parable, let's say, Hebrews 6, and you're going to throw out everything that's clear because of something that's unclear to you? He says, just inter- presume that the clear teachings of Scripture are true and then interpret the unclear in light of that. And so I think that that's what we ought to do. I think when it's talking about people, if they are indeed being uh, uh, disciplined here or punished, I would say, not disciplined, uh, then this parable is teaching that there may be people who are professing faith, uh, thinking they genuinely believe in the master or have him as a master, but then they see he's not coming, so they're not going to live for him because they really don't trust him. And that's why they will... You know, some who are punished will be punished worse for their failings. Uh, those who know more will be punished more, and those who know less will be punished less. But everyone uh, will will face the judge, and that's what the outcome will be. But I don't think it's loss of salvation. It's demonstrating that they never really had it. So, mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, Crystal, for that question. Our next question is from Barb in Spokane, Washington. Listens to w- Sorry, listens to KMBI. Um, she said, thinking in terms of Romans 1, 16, that everyone who believes receives salvation, and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace, sorry, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Um, are, is having faith and believing synonymous, or is it a two-step process? Do we bring belief to the table and then God supplies the faith? I know we're dead in our sins, but if we show interest... Um, then God provides the faith that we need, or is God providing the belief and the faith as a gift? Uh, she's she's really confused about what is faith <laughs> and what is belief. Yeah, she seems to think they're two totally different things, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, but the Greek word in the New Testament for faith, pistuo, also is translated believe. Right. Mm. They, mm-hmm. it's the same word. 
to have faith and to believe mean exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so when you see believe or faith, it's the same word. It's not a two-step process. It's not a two-step it's process. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the same exact thing. And uh, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where it says that by grace you save through faith, not of works, lest any person should boast, it is the gift of God. It is not faith that's the gift. It's salvation that's the gift. Uh, that's what it's referring to. Uh, God doesn't give us faith as a gift. Now, what he does do, and I'm going to just, what God does is, I think, a really good illustration of it is in Acts 16. I'm going to have Eva read the verse. I'm going to tell her it's Acts 16. And the reason I have her read the verse, because I'm trying, I think her version actually uh, translates it better. She reads the New American Standard which she thinks that Moses and Paul actually... <laughs> it's an autographed copy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Uh, it says in Acts 16, and it's verse... Uh, uh, 14? That 14, one? yeah, mm-hmm. the second half. Mm-hmm. You want to read that? Uh, it says, A woman named Lydia from the from the ta- city of, Ty- of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabric, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Why do we believe? God God opens opens our our hearts. That's why. We'll be back with more of your questions in just a moment. Don't go away. This is Michael Rydelnik on Open Line. Stay with us. The whole Bible tells one big story. It begins in a garden, ends in a city, and all the way through it points to the Messiah Jesus. Understanding the Bible as a unified whole helps us understand it much better. And that's precisely why I'd like to share with you 10 Keys for Unlocking the Bible by Colin Smith. We'll send you a copy with your gift of any amount to OpenLine just to say thank you. Call 888-644-7122 or visit openlineradio.org. We're so glad that FEBC partners with OpenLine with Dr. Michael Radonik, bringing the FEBC mailbag every week. Learn how Far East Broadcasting Company is taking Christ to the world at febc.org. On their weekly podcast, Until All Have Heard with Ed Cannon, you'll hear stories of lives changed by Messiah all across the globe. Again, you can hear the podcast when you visit febc.org. That's febc.org. Welcome back to Open Line with me, Dr. Michael Radelnik, and joining me today is my best friend, my colleague at Moody, my fellow contributor to the Moody Bible Institute, and my wife, Eva Radelnik. Also here is Tricia McMillan, producer of Open Line. She's compiled all the questions you've sent, and she is in studio right now, and she's the one who is controlling everything. She decides what questions will be answered. So those of you out there who are listening and you say, Michael, you didn't answer the question I wrote in. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's Trisha's fault. That's what I have to say. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> okay, so what's our next question? All right, our next question is from Betty. She says, in Revelation 21.3, does it say we will see God when we get to heaven? So the verse says, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Mm-hmm. So will we, will we see God? Well, the, <sighs> this is one of the things that I say all the time, that no man has ever seen God, but who has revealed him? The Son. Son. Yeah. And the only time we'll ever see God is the Lord Jesus. Now, it says that the Lord 
will dwell with humanity. But in what sense will he dwell with humanity in eternity? In the person of the Lord Jesus, in the second person. So even though it doesn't state that, there's no other way it can be that he will dwell with humanity in the sense that he is the Lord, the Lord Jesus is fully God. He is the one that will rule over us for eternity. We can't see God the Father because he is a spirit when he has been revealed in places like Daniel 7. It's a vision. It is not an actual seeing of God. Uh, we cannot see, Jesus said, the Lord Jesus said, God is a spirit, must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. We cannot see God the Father because he is a spirit and you can't see a spirit. But God will be with us forever and lead us forever because he is the Lord Jesus. Uh, and it just he, says God and the Lord Jesus is God. Yeah. So, so I, I just don't. I'm convinced that we will not see God the Father, but we will see God the Son for all eternity. And actually, you know what? Jesus said, if that's not enough for you, I and the Father are one. I don't see why that would be a problem for anyone. Uh, we'll see him not just... I, I find it interesting that in Revelation 1, when the Lord Jesus is depicted, uh, he is not depicted as he is shown in the Gospels. In the Gospels... I, it's it's like what we see is Jesus as every man. He looks like ordinary. He looks like it's not that he looks. They had they wouldn't recognize him in the garden if Judas hadn't pointed yeah. him out. He looks he like so a normal ordinary. person, an ordinary person. Uh, in Isaiah fifty three, it talks about how he didn't have royal bearing. He didn't have any special uh, super charisma. He he's just ordinary. Uh, when we think of Superman and Clark Kent, Clark Kent looks ordinary, and then of course. Uh, Superman is the all-powerful superhero. Well, in in Revelation 1, when the Lord Jesus is depicted, he's not depicted as ordinary. It says uh, that I saw, this is in uh, verse 18, uh, 13, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow. And his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace. And his voice like the sound of cascading waters like Niagara Falls. And so the the point of this is when Jesus is depicted in his glory, he looks somewhat like the Father's depiction in Daniel 7, right? And I believe that the reason for this is because in his glory, in John 17, what uh, the Lord Jesus says uh, is that now glorify, I have glorified you, he says, uh, for example, in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. And so in his glorified, exalted state, the Lord Jesus doesn't look like every man anymore. Now he's got the image of the glorified of, of the glorified Father. That's what he says right there. And the Father answers that prayer. And so we're not going to be disappointed like, oh, Jesus looks so ordinary. I don't want to be with him and see him for eternity. No, we're going to be in the presence of very God, and he is glorious, and he is the one that reveals God to and, us. And taking it back to that Revelation 21 passage, it opens up with, he heard a, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. So she says, isn't this God the Father that we're seeing here on this throne? Verse 5 says, 
And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, These words are faithful and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, which is how Jesus is identified in chapter 1, verse 8. Yeah. So clearly this is Jesus that yeah. we're seeing here in chapter 21, not God the Father. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that question, Betty, and thank you for that answer. Um, our next question is from... Uh, Chris on Facebook wrote and wanted to know, we're going back to parables, in <laughs> okay. Matthew 13, uh, the parable of the weeds, uh, Matthew 13, 24 through 29. Is this before or after the rapture, or is it about the rapture? The parable of the wheat and the chaff, is that it, or the parable of the weeds? Parable of the weeds. I'll look it up. So the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Yeah. While people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's slaves came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and gather them up? The slaves asked him. No, he said. When you gather up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reaper. I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but store the wheat in my barn. Yeah. Well, before Michael answers this question, we'll do a little agricultural talk here, that the the word that's used for weeds is, is actually tares. And when those plants come up, those little plants, they look exactly like wheat coming up. So yeah. if you looked at the field, you wouldn't be able to tell that there had been anything wrong with the plants that were growing up there. It was only when they became mature and the wheat had the head on it that you would see, okay, that's the grain, and these other things are weeds. Uh, so, uh, some people think that among believers, there's you can't tell those who are real believers and those who are not, and that they're growing up together. I, I really don't think that this is what it's about. It's talking about earth, and the kingdom of heaven, which is growing here on the earth. You know, uh, Jesus is growing the kingdom, his rule on earth, and right here, you've got people who are believers, who look, I mean... You and I and Eva, we all look rather ordinary, you know, like regular people. And then if we walk out onto LaSalle Boulevard, there'll be people who don't know the Lord, and they look the same as us. We're growing up together in this world. And so when the judgment time was going to come, uh, they said, uh, do you want us to go and gather them up? And he said, no, when you gather up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. So when judgment's going to fall on the earth, if you do it now, it's going to fall upon believers and non-believers alike. And so what's he say? Let both grow together. And what have we had since the first century, since the birth of the church? We've had believers and non-believers, people who are followers of Jesus and people who are not followers of Jesus. And we look alike sort of to the outside, naked eye, but we're growing up together in this world. And then he says, at harvest time, that's the judgment, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but store the wheat in my barn. So I think what it's talking about in the judgment, they're going to separate. And I I actually think that uh, what's going to happen for the church before judgment hits is we will be removed will be gathered to the barn, so to speak. And then, uh, but I think it, it's a little bit hard, in my opinion, to force a pre-tribulation, post-tribulational rapture on this. He is, the Lord Jesus is just saying that A, believers and non-believers are going to be growing in this world together. And B, 
when judgment day comes, God will separate them and uh, the believers won't be judged, but this earth will be judged. That's what I think it's saying. Thank you. Uh, we'll be right back with more of your Bible questions that Trish is looking for right now. And uh, remember, you can always email your questions to us at openline at moody.edu. You can tweet them to at Openline Radio 1. You can like us on Facebook and post it there. You're listening to Open Line with Michael Ray Delnick. Don't go away. Eva, Trish, and I will be right back. People are always asking me questions about the Jewish people. Some of you want to know how to reach your Jewish friends with the gospel, or you want to understand how the Messiah fulfilled prophecy. Others want to learn about the Jewish feasts and festivals. Chosen People Ministries is an organization that reaches Jewish people with the good news all around the world. Each month, Chosen People Ministries offers a free resource to open line listeners that can help you in your personal walk with Messiah Jesus. Or it can help you reach out to your Jewish friends and neighbors. For your free copy of this month's resource, go to the OpenLine website. That's openlineradio.org. And scroll down and find the link that says, A Free Gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that link and you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own free copy of this month's resource. Welcome back to this all-mailbag, all-the-time edition of Open Line. I'm Michael Ray Delnick. Trisha McMillan is with me, and she has skillfully managed the mailbag throughout, uh, uh, as Eva and I, Eva Ray Delnick, who's also here, have been trying to do our best to answer your questions. Eva is here. She is my forever sidekick and has been answering those questions along with me this uh, these last two hours. I'm really grateful. Thank you for coming in. It's great to be here. Yeah. I love it. Okay, Trish, what do we got? Our next question is from Denise in Chicago, listens to WMBI. She wants to know, is Paul the 12th apostle? Uh, you know, some people want to say that in Acts 1, when they chose to add a 12th disciple, that they made a mistake, that, that God wanted them to wait for uh, Paul to be the, the 12th disciple. I don't think that's a mistake. There, when you read Acts 1, where Mattathias is chosen, there isn't a hint of condemnation or like they did something wrong. It is an act that is obviously led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, when they choose lots, that's the last time because the, the church is born in Acts 2, and after that the Holy Spirit indwells believers, and no longer does they, do they use lots to determine. But nevertheless, Mattathias is the one that is chosen, and it is rightly so. Uh, and the Holy Spirit leads the, them with the lots, guides them to Mattathias. And the reason for it, I believe, is in Matthew 19, in Matthew 19, it says in verse 28, when it talks about the disciples, it says, I assure you, Jesus said to them, I assure you, in the messianic age, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So there were apostles, or the 12 apostles, were the 12 apostles who would rule over Israel. They were functioning not as the foundation of the church in that way, but they were functioning as the leaders of Israel, the remnant of Israel, and they are part of the remnant of Israel, and they are going to be ruling over Israel in the kingdom. And so they needed to choose a 12th apostle to be an apostle to Israel. However, Paul comes along, and he's not an apostle to Israel. He's an apostle to the uncircumcised. And so he he's genuinely apostle, but he's not one of the 12. 
He's an additional apostle, as is Barnabas, uh, who will go to the Gentiles. And so, uh, no, they did not make a mistake. Mattathias is the right one, and Paul is an additional apostle. One untimely born, he says. Mm-hmm. And, and Mattathias apparently was among those unnamed earlier on who followed along with Jesus all along. And yeah. we know that Paul was not doing that. Yeah, he was there from the beginning. That's what they said they needed. And they also said that he testified of the resurrection. So obviously he was among them when the, when the Lord Jesus appeared as a resurrected Lord. So good choice, I mm. would say. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Denise, for that question. Jeremy wrote us and said, I recently witnessed to a professing atheist in which he kind of discredited my view that Christianity was the only true religion because I had not read other religious texts. Um, such as the Quran or or other books like that. I've studied the Mormon religion and have found, and have found um, faults that verify it's a false religion, but I haven't read the whole Book of Mormon. Um, it just seemed like my stance that I feel like I don't have to actually read other religious books to stand on my faith that the Bible is the true book of the only true religion, Christianity, was not valid to him. How should I respond to someone who discredits me for not having read other religious books when I try to prove that Christianity is the only true religion? It's pretty. This is in, in today's pluralistic mindset. This is not an unusual question to have to come into contact with. But I think that the best answer we can get is what we learn from the bank. If you go to work as a teller in the bank, they one of the things that tellers have to do tellers have to be able to recognize counterfeit money. And the way that a teller is taught to recognize counterfeit money isn't by looking at 50 or 60 or 100 examples of counterfeit money. They're taught to recognize counterfeit money by knowing what the real money looks like. By knowing how the true looks, that helps us when we come across anything that doesn't look like that true thing, then we go, ah, that's suspicious. That's probably a counterfeit. So I think that the answer to this you know, accusation is you haven't studied every false religion. It's, it's fine. It's okay. I tell you what I know. I know that I've studied the true, and by the true, then we can recognize the false. And then challenge your friend, why don't we take some time and read the Bible together and see what you think of it? Yeah, study the true. That's what I think. Now, I have to say, if I were specializing in working with some sect or some group, I I would study it so I could help them see what I see from Scripture. Yes. Uh, Yes. But if, just generally speaking, I don't, in fact, in fact, one of the things I discovered about OpenLine when I first started doing it, I used to get a lot of questions about various cults of Christianity and different groups, and they wanted me to talk about other religions. And, you know, frankly, I'm not that good at it. Uh, and I, I used to say, well, I'll give you my answer, but really what I know is the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> right. And, and I think people would say, oh, uh, I'm sorry, this guy's not that good. But they st- I finally taught them not to ask me those questions so much. They mostly ask me the questions about the Bible. So one of the things that even I can do is we can talk about what the Talmud says and what the Midrash says and what mm-hmm. the Mishnah says. Because my special area of expertise is, is Judaism, and so I better know that. Yes. So it's not wrong to study other literature. It's just that the most important thing I can do is study the, the Bible. The true. The true. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks, Jeremy, for that question. I hope... That is helpful for you um, as you continue having conversations with your friend. Our next question is from Marcia. She listens to us in Alberta, Canada. She says, I've seen a version of the Bible that includes books like Tobit and Baruch and a few others. Were these books in the Jewish scriptures? If not, where did they come from and who decided to add them? Good, good observation of these books, Tobit and Baruch and some others like Maccabees and things. 
Um, you'll sometimes see them at the end of the Old Testament, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament in some versions of the Bible. They were never recognized as Scripture by the in the Jewish canon. The Old Testament that we have, running from Genesis to Malachi, um, that is the that is the Old Testament that was always held to be the Old Testament by the Jewish people. That was the Old Testament during the time of Jesus. Of course, it was just called the Torah then. Or the Tanakh. Or the Tanakh, exactly. Yeah. Um, these books actually were, you know, helpful educational literature that was around early in the in that time period, but were never considered, they were didactic teaching literature, but they were never considered part of the scripture by the Jewish community and was not considered part of the scriptures by the early church. They actually came into that little back of the Bible, back of the Old Testament part in the Middle Ages. Yeah, and actually it's later than the Middle Ages. Uh, it the, the the setting of the canon that, that included those books, we can put it right at 1546. That's, that's why I was thinking about yeah. Middle Ages. Yeah, the Counter-Reformation. And what it was is they the, in the response to the Reformation, uh, the setting of, uh, with the Reformation... Uh, sometimes the Counter-Reformation was trying to say, we want to justify some of the things that we say we are teaching, they're from Scripture. Some things that Luther and other Reformers objected to. Well, they're not in Scripture, but they are in these apocryphal books, as they're called. And so what they said is, oh, we're now going to include these as sort of a quasi-Scripture along with the Hebrew Bible. Uh, And so that's how they got in. Uh, 16th century. That's kind of a late yeah, time. So to, it's like 1517. So 1546 is the Counter Reformation at the Council of Trent. That's when they brought those in. So uh, it's it's certainly not. Uh, it was never considered scripture by a Judaism by b uh, the early church. It was only in the 16th century that it got settled in there and brought in. But you know what? They're kind of interesting. Right. And, they are interesting. When when I took New Testament survey as a Moody student many years ago. We had to read the Apocrypha before we read the New Testament. And some are inspirational stories, which are encouraging, and mm-hmm. some are historical things that are interesting, and some are just like crazy mm-hmm. stories. Yeah, <laughs> some of them are. Well, <laughs> amazingly, that's the program for today. Wow, we're Thank out of time. You. Out of time, that's right. Thanks for listening, everyone, especially those of you who wrote in with your questions. As always, thanks to Tricia McMillan for producing and for Chris Papender for putting this whole thing together with the, uh, his excellent engineering skill. Join us next week because we'll be live taking your questions via phone. Remember, keep in touch with us by going to our website, openlineradio.org. It's got links to the Chosen People Ministries free resource and a link to my own personal webpage. Keep reading the Bible, and we'll talk about it next week. Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik is a production of Moody Radio, the ministry of Moody Bible Institute. 